From the Salvation Army, welcome to the Holiness Podcast with Lieutenant Colonel Vern Jewett. In this monthly Bible study, we'll be exploring God's gift of holiness, which is offered to every Christian. To download this month's study guide, visit us at salvationarmysoundcast.org slash holiness. This is Vern Jewett, and I welcome you to the Holiness Podcast. As we are recording today, the full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia is bringing heartache, distress, and unspeakable tragedy to millions of people. We as the church also have entered into the season of Lent, which prepares us for the observance of the suffering and death of Jesus, and ultimately to the celebration of his resurrection. These themes of pain and suffering, which lead ultimately to spiritual rebirth and new life, have emerged for me in the remarkable story recorded in Luke 24, the story of the two disciples who encountered their risen Lord on the road back to their home in Emmaus. So this will be our text today, and I invite you to listen with me to Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 29. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not, but him they did not see. He said to them, being Jesus, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, 
Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. I've been captivated the past few days with a picture of these two disciples. Were the scene not so common, it would be comical. <clears throat> two heavy-hearted disciples slouching their way home to Emmaus. By the slump in their shoulders, you'd never know today was Resurrection Sunday. By the looks on their faces, you'd think Jesus was still in the tomb. We were hoping that he would free Israel, you remember, in verse 21 in the scripture passage we read. As if he hasn't. How could you be so close to Christ and miss the point? Jesus has just redeemed the world, and they're complaining about Rome. Jesus came to deal with sin and death, and they want him to deal with Caesar and soldiers. Jesus came to set us free, and they want to be set free from taxes. Talk about a miscommunication. They missed the revolution. They lived in a little town seven miles away from Jerusalem called Emmaus. They had seen the kangaroo court of the Sanhedrin. They had seen the crucifixion. And they were emotionally depressed, overcome. They were bogged down with their own feelings, their own distress. They were bogged down with their disappointment. We had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And they had failed to recognize that the very pouring of his blood out on the cross led to and provided for the sacrifice for our sins and for our salvation. They failed to recognize that the very tomb that held Jesus for three days would hold your sins and mine forever. And by that I mean we bury our sins with him in the crucifixion and they stay buried forever. On the greatest day in the history of the world, these two disciples were dejected, downcast, and headed home. They were confused, discouraged, and I believe diverted. If ever there was a time to go forward with confidence and hope and excitement, this was it. But they had missed out. This is a story of Jesus helping two ordinary persons who had lost hope and fallen into the pit of sadness and despair. Now, in this story, an encounter with Jesus himself changes all of that. And I believe God wants to say something to every Christian here through his word. I believe the Holy Spirit led Luke to tell this story about these two men because we can, be, we can learn and be challenged by their experience. Do we have the courage and honesty to see ourselves today in the same shoes as these two disciples? How can we be so close to Christ and miss the point? 
Let me recharacterize what I said a few moments ago and contemporize it for perhaps you and me. Jesus has redeemed the world and we're caught up in our own circumstances and are discouraged, confused, and diverted just like these two disciples. Jesus came to deal with sin and death and we want him to deal with high gas prices, having to wear masks, and percentage losses to our retirement accounts. Jesus came to set us free from eternal separation from God, and we want to be set free from any imposition on my claim to my right to myself. Perhaps some of you recognize the reference we've made in recent podcasts to the self-absorption and myth of self-sovereignty, which is the enemy of holy living. That phrase, my claim, to my right, to myself. The resurrected Christ challenged their false cause for depression. It was a false cause. What did he say? A mild rebuke. How foolish you are. How slow to believe. In verse 23, when they told him the women saw an angel and told them that Jesus was alive. Yet there they are in anxiety and worry. It's like sitting in a rocking chair. You're not going anywhere, but it gives you something to do. I'm not talking about clinical depression. I'm not talking about addictive depression. I'm talking about emotional depression, which is discouragement that's tied to circumstances. I want the message to be as clear as possible. So let me give you the heart of the message and the point of our podcast today, right up front. And then we can ponder it and use the next few moments to consider what God wants to say to us individually. Let me finish the story, picking up at verse 30. You remember that they had persuaded him to come to their home. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Three things happened that turned them around and moved them forward. First, their eyes were opened. Secondly, they recognized Jesus as the living, risen Son of God. And thirdly, their hearts burned within them. Don't you love that verse? One translation says, they said to each other, it felt like a fire burning in us when Jesus talked to us on the road. They knew they had been with Jesus because of the fire burning within them. I believe that all of us have walked on the Emmaus Road. And some of us are doing so right now. We know what it means to be confused, 
discouraged, not recognizing Jesus in our lives. We're not going forward in the power of the resurrected Christ. The fire, the fire within is gone. I want to introduce you to a song written by General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. Those of you who may be Salvationists will know it as song number 326 in our songbook, our hymnal. But these are the words. Thou Christ of burning, cleansing flame, send the fire. Thy blood-bought gift today we claim, send the fire. Look down and see this waiting host. Give us the promised Holy Ghost. We want another Pentecost. Send the fire. You see, we need to decide together and individually that God is going to be God in our lives and that we are going to move forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. God desires that every one of us have a fire burning within us for him. He gave William Booth a fire for lost souls, for the disenfranchised and the downtrodden. He gave Jeremiah a fire for hard hearts. He gave Nehemiah a fire for a forgotten city. He set Abraham on fire for a land he had never seen. He set Isaiah on fire with a vision he couldn't resist. Forty years of fruitless preaching didn't extinguish the fire of Noah. Forty years of wilderness wandering didn't douse the passion of Moses. There was a fire within them. And isn't there one in you? Want to know God's will for your life? Then answer this question. What ignites your heart? Forgotten street people? Untouched nations who need the gospel? The inner city? The outer limits? Today, I would urge you to heed the fire within. That's God's Holy Spirit speaking to you. Do you have a passion to sing? Then sing to the Lord. Are you stirred to manage? Then manage. Do you ache for those who are ill? Then treat them. Do you hurt for the lost? Then teach them. What is the fire that consumes you? Mark it down. Jesus comes and sends his Holy Spirit to set you on fire. And if our hearts are cold, he wants to stir them up again. How do we lose the fire? How does it subside and then go out within us? I believe we encountered two disciples of Jesus in this passage, in whom the fire had gone out. Well, I believe there are clear lessons in the story that I would mention briefly, and the Holy Spirit will let each of us know if they apply to us and to our own lives. First, the Holy Spirit keeps the fire burning through the people of God. The first mistake of these two disciples was to disregard the words of their fellow disciples. 
You see, God reveals his will through a community of believers. The Holy Spirit lives in you, but when you are saved, you become part of a larger community in which the Holy Spirit resides. On this very first Easter morning, he spoke through women who spoke to others. The passage said, Today some women among us amazed us. Early this morning they went to the tomb, but they did not find his body there. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said Jesus was alive. They received the word from the Holy Spirit through the women, but they didn't accept it. You see, his plan hasn't changed today. God still speaks to believers through other believers. That's why God has given each part of the body, you and me and everyone else, assignments. One way he reveals his will to you is through the church. He speaks to one member of his body through another member. It could happen in a Bible class, a small group, during dessert. <laughs> God has many methods, as many as his people. That, by the way, is why Satan doesn't want you faithfully in church. Perhaps you've noticed that when you're in a spiritual slump, you head out to Emmaus too. You don't want to be with believers, or if you do, you sneak in and sneak out of the service, maybe making excuses about meals to prepare or work to do. The truth is, Satan doesn't want you hearing God's will. And since God reveals his will to his children through other children, he doesn't want you in church. Now, this may be a very timely message for us. COVID has made it easy to attend church by watching online and sitting in our pajamas or whatever else we want to wear at home. Friends, the Holy Spirit keeps the fire burning through fellow believers. It's time for us. Well, depending upon your community, your circumstances, but it's time for many of us to return to the congregation where God can speak to us in person. These disciples had been defeated by the circumstances the apparent death of Jesus. They had become separated in spirit. And even when the women came with a message from the empty tomb, they didn't receive it. We too can lose the fire by separation from other believers. We all need each other. Take a glowing coal from the fire. Lay it aside from the rest. Watch it as it gradually dims, turns gray, then black. What killed it? Why did it lose its glow and its heat? Take a leafy branch from a tree. Lay it carefully aside and watch. Watch as the color slowly fades, the leaves go limp, curl up, dry out. What killed it? Why did it lose its color and its life? Take a fish out of the water. <laughs> Lay it carefully in the grass. 
Watch it frantically twist and struggle. Why do the gills move more slowly and more slowly? Why does life slip away and it soon lies still and lifeless? Now listen, friends. Take a child of God. Carefully separate him from Christians. Separate her from prayer, Bible study, worship. Watch as his conscience quivers less and less. Listen as she rationalizes her neglect more and more. Listen as he shifts the blame by complaining about circumstances. Why does spiritual life subside? Because separation is a killer. We don't have to commit overt sins. Neglect can destroy us. Perhaps that's the reason the fire has gone out from someone who is listening, even right now. Secondly, this passage teaches us that the Holy Spirit keeps the fire burning through the Word of God. The two disciples disregarded the Word of God. That was their second mistake. Rather than consult the Scriptures, they listened to their fears. Jesus corrects this by appearing to them and conducting a Bible study. The resurrected Christ corrected their partial information that led to their depression and their disillusion. You see, Jesus had taught his disciples. Now, we don't know how long these two Emmaus disciples had been with Jesus, but we know that Jesus had taught his 12 disciples that the Son of Man will be crucified and killed, and after three days, he will rise again. He did so to prepare them and get them ready with expectation. He did it in the ninth chapter of Mark. He did it again in the 10th chapter of Mark. And he did it again in the 11th chapter of Mark. But the disciples acted only on partial information. I've learned in my life, my various responsibilities, that partial information can be deadly. I used to sit on boards that had to make decisions about major financial expenditures, about employee complaints. And I can tell you that in important matters, partial information is deadly. Verse 25, Jesus says to them, How foolish you are. Why? Because they had not looked at the word of God, or they would have been familiar and expecting what had happened in the last three days. In effect, what they're doing is saying, I choose this. They had heard about Israel being delivered by the coming Messiah, but I don't choose to listen to this. Or I like this, but I don't like that. I'll study this, but I, I won't study that part of the Bible. I believe that's a description of many people's attitudes toward God's word. 
The ultimate example for me was the day I went and visited Monticello in Virginia, and I encountered and looked at Thomas Jefferson's Bible. Thomas Jefferson thought the Bible was valuable, but only the portions that he deemed to be important. So he took two New Testaments. It's actually just the New Testament. He took two New Testaments since the script was printed on both sides of each page, and he went through, and the things that he liked, he kept. The things he didn't like, he took a pair of scissors and cut out. Well, in Thomas Jefferson's Bible, you have to ask, who is the authority? He's the authority. Not God's word, but him. Interestingly, in the 27th verse, when it describes Jesus' response to them, it says that he showed them the whole word of God as it concerned himself. Jesus corrected their partial information. I wonder what Jesus taught. It says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Wow, I would have loved to have been in that Bible study. <laughs> I would have loved to sat under Jesus, to sit under Jesus' teachings on that day. He corrected their partial information. Through the words of the prophets, God uses scripture to reveal his will, and he does the same today. I believe if you and I will open the word of God and will become faithful students, we know that beautiful verse that says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing, it said in the King James, accurately handling the word of truth. We need to be people of God's word, because the Holy Spirit keeps the fire burning through the study of his word. He does so today. I was thinking about these verses the other night, and it suddenly hit me. What they missed was the gospel. They missed the good news about Jesus' resurrection. Let me caution us that if the gospel is not central to the life of a believer, to the life of a church, to the life of a denomination, then we too could lose the gospel. Satan loves to divert us so that we're busy about everything except telling the good news and fulfilling the Great Commission teaching all that Jesus had taught us to the whole world. Well, how does Satan divert us? What kind of things does he use? Well, good things to be sure. This is where mature believers can chime in and probably give examples. He uses a passionate devotion to a good Christian cause. Or perhaps a very confident handling and manipulation of modern management techniques, or maybe a drive toward church growth and success by numbers, or maybe a deep concern for the institution of the family. 
or a fascination of the more unusual gifts of the Spirit, or a warm affirmation of self-esteem. The church, the Salvation Army, any denomination stripped of the gospel might find itself fixed upon any of those concerns which then define them and take energy for its mission. But whatever you, you can say about those various concerns as alternatives to the centrality of the gospel, and those are important matters, all of them with genuine validity, even urgency in some cases, not one of them is central to the gospel. Not one of them is the gospel or deserves to push the gospel to the periphery of our message. But I'm afraid the gospel of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ today is suffering humiliation among many of us who call ourselves evangelicals by our conspicuous neglect of it. Just go with me for a minute here. Think with me. Reflect with me. When we think of the gospel, we may have a feeling that we already know that. Ho-hum. We assume the gospel as a given. We assume that the people in our churches know the gospel. And we are anxious to move on to more relevant and practical topics. Dear friends, we should not think, well, of course we have the gospel. Every generation of Christians must be taught afresh. The church is always one generation away from total ignorance of the gospel. I was listening just this past weekend to one of the Salvation Army leaders, Commissioner Brad Bailey. He was in St. Petersburg, Florida, and he was addressing retired officers. But he was sharing a time since he and his wife Heidi had lived and served in several continents around the world. He was telling us that when he was in Spain, and my wife Martha and I had the privilege of visiting them and staying with them a few days in Spain, but he was reflecting on their time in Spain, and he said that when he would try to begin a conversation about Jesus, people didn't have any idea who he was talking about. He said, we had to start from the very beginning. And he believes, and I agree, it's not just Spain. Dear friends, we live in a postmodern world that really doesn't want to hear about Jesus. Every once in a while, when I'm speaking about this particular uh, topic, I'll ask the congregation, and if they're people who've been in church for very long, they sing along with me. Everybody ought to know who Jesus is. And there's a little refrain in it where we sing, He's the lily of the valley. He's the bright morning star. He's the fairest of 10,000. Everybody ought to know. But here's the truth. Everybody doesn't know who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit keeps the fire burning through the Word of God, which gives us 
the good news. Rather than assuming the gospel, we must aggressively, deliberately, fully and passionately teach and preach the gospel. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Finally, the Holy Spirit keeps the fire burning through personal, intimate time with God. Let's go back again to the text. I read those three verses separately about Jesus sitting at the table with these disciples, giving thanks, breaking bread. That's when their eyes were opened and they recognized him. That's when they said, weren't our hearts burning with fire within us as he taught us? We learn about God's will by spending time in his presence. You and I, no, as we've been studying for two years now, that holiness is all about our relationship with God, a personal relationship. And the essence of that for those of us who are on this side of the cross is that God the Holy Spirit lives in us and speaks to us individually. He speaks to me differently than he would speak to you. Just because God spoke to Moses through a burning bush doesn't mean that we should all sit next to a bush waiting for God to speak. No, your walk with God is personal and essential. His heart is not received in an occasional chat or a weekly visit. We learn his will as he takes up residence through his spirit in our lives. And we take up residence in him. Walk with the Holy Spirit closely enough and long enough and you will come to know his heart. I didn't know whether to mention it or not, but in verse 28, there's a curious statement made. They were coming near the time of Emmaus and the word says that Jesus acted as if he were going further. Does that mean that Jesus didn't want to be with his disciples? Of course not. But he doesn't want to be where he's not invited. The Lord awaits our invitation. Notice, it was after they gave this invitation that they were allowed to recognize Jesus and the fire within their hearts began to burn. The disciples on the Emmaus Road are not alone. We too must invite him in today for a new touch, for a new fanning of the flame. God is represented, God the Holy Spirit is represented in Scripture by fire many times. Of course, God the Holy Spirit lives in us. We are a sanctuary. I think of that beautiful chorus we sing. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. And what that means is that we let God be God in our lives. Do you remember Elijah, who in faith stood alone against the prophets of Baal? 
and staked his life on God sending the fire. In William Booth's song, which we mentioned earlier, the second verse picks up that theme. And I want you to listen to and be blessed. This is a song that was written probably 130 years ago, somewhere in that time period. God of Elijah, hear our cry. Send the fire. To make us fit to live or die, send the fire. To burn up every trace of sin, to bring the light and glory in, the revolution now begin. Send the fire. Tis fire we want, for fire we plead. Send the fire. The fire will meet our every need. Send the fire. For strength to ever do the right. For grace to conquer in the fight. For power to walk the world in white. Those are beautiful metaphors of holy living. Send the fire. The last verse, to make our weak hearts strong and brave, send the fire. To live a dying world to save, send the fire. Oh, see us on thy altar lay our lives, our all, this very day. To crown the offering, now we pray, send the fire. That's a song a century old that is as contemporary as anything we could bring to our fellowship of believers today. Are you confused, discouraged this morning or this afternoon? Is the fire gone? You can have an encounter right now with the same living Christ that changed the lives of these two disciples. You can burn with the fire of the Holy Spirit within you. He is here. He is waiting. It's a wonderful story. It's a story that's appropriate for this time of year. Actually, it's a story that's always appropriate. The resurrected Jesus led these two disciples to the joy that overcomes their confusion and discouragement and depression. You see, Jesus is either Lord of your life or you're walking on the wrong road. God the Holy Spirit's coming makes the difference in our lives. It changes fear to courage. It changes doubt to faith. It changes defeat to victory. It changes anxiety and depression to mission with a passion. I want to close our study today with a word of prayer. I invite you to join me. Heavenly Father, I pause and thank you for your word, for the power it has, and for the Holy Spirit who interprets us and speaks to us and makes it alive in our own hearts. I pray, God, that you will reignite the fire 
that you want burning in our hearts. I pray that you will fill and transform us through your Holy Spirit. May it be so. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray these things. Amen. Well, I hope you've enjoyed and been blessed by this study. It's been a significant one in my own life. And we'll look forward to you joining us again next month on the Holiness Podcast. God bless you each one. Thanks so much for listening, and we'd love to hear from you. Share your thoughts, questions, or prayer requests. Visit us at SalvationArmySoundcast.org slash holiness. And if you're enjoying this Bible study, share it with a friend. They can subscribe wherever they get their podcasts. Thank you.